I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and personal finance expert, Ramit Sethi. His new book is I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and this is the second edition. No guilt, no excuses, no BS, just a six-week program that works. Wouldn't it be great if you could beat banks and credit cards at the fee game, effectively negotiate for a raise, and go on more vacations? It's possible. According to Ramit Sethi, who gives guidance on living a rich life, a life where money brings meaning, where you can afford to give back, and where experiences and the time to pursue them are a priority. Sethi has become a financial guru to millions of readers in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. He started his website, I Will Teach You uh, How to Be Rich.com, as a Stanford undergraduate in 2004 and now hosts over a million readers per month on his blog, newsletter, and social media writing about money, business, and psychology. He's been featured in Fortune, the New York Times, the Tim Ferriss Podcast, and WSJ, the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Amit. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as I said right before we started the program, um, most people do want to be rich, even if they say they don't. I think they usually do. So uh, we're ready to hear and uh, ready to hear you tell us how we can do that. And, and I just have to say, you've been, and I say, heralded as the new finance guru by Fortune magazine. So what makes them call you the new finance guru? And you have a background in technology and psychology. How did you get this? How did you come to sort of occupy this spot within the world of personal finance? Well, I was always interested in the difference between what people say and what they do. And everybody says they want more money and they want to be rich or they want to have freedom. But if you take a look at where they spent their time in the last seven days, they've almost never done anything constructive with their money. And most of the time when it comes to money, just think about how an ordinary person behaves. Uh, The way that they describe money is words like anxious, nervous, guilty, too late. And whenever they actually do something with money behaviorally, they just get to the end of the month, they look at their bills, they shrug, and they say, I guess I spent that much. So on one hand, we're saying we want to do all these great things with money, but on the other hand, we're not actually doing anything. And that's what originally got me interested to bring a psychology background to improving the way that we treat money. So what you're saying, it has to do with attitude, and I would agree with that. In other words, we say we want to be rich, we want to have money, but then we always, there's always a no attached to it. And I think you talk about that in the book. Like, I can't do this because I don't have enough money. I can't, rather than, yes, I can do this, and how am I going to do it? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I'll give you an example. I posted something on my Instagram account just a few days ago called Ramit's 10 Money Rules. And these are 10 simple money rules that I use for my finances and, and how I live my life. And there were a lot of people who loved it. Some people had never thought about creating rules around their money. But there were a lot of people who said, oh, who has enough money to be able to do that? And simply by leaving that comment, they have guaranteed that they will never have enough money to create their own rules. Why? Because if your first inclination when you look at someone else talking about what their rich life is, is to tear it down and to say why you could never do that, then guess what? You're right. If, on the other hand, you say, wow, how'd they do that? Why would someone spend money flying maybe, let's say, business class or going out to a certain restaurant? Or why would someone not spend any money on, like, for example, my computer, which is seven years old? I just don't care about replacing it. It's fine. 
what's going on? If we got more curious about money instead of judgmental, then we could really start to change the way we think about our rich lives. All right, let's start with the curiosity. We need to be more curious, not judgmental. How do we do that? Where do we begin? When I was 22, I was extremely judgmental about money. And I, would, I remember getting on planes, and I would walk past the people who were sitting up front, and I would laugh. I would say, ha, 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 these stupid people, they're spending four times the amount on the same flight, and we all get to the same place. What I should have done was to say, wow, if somebody can afford it, why would they choose to spend four times the money just to sit in a little bit of a nicer seat? I wonder what's going on. Or I wonder why someone would choose to spend that much on a certain type of cocktail or a restaurant or a coat. It doesn't matter what it is. That's what I should have done. Because if I had done that, I would have started to discover there are lots of different ways to look at the world besides trying to save money. Trying to save money is the number one lens that we look at the world through because in America, it's all about cutting back. Don't spend money on lattes. Don't spend money on new clothes. Don't even go outside. Just sit in a cave for the next 80 years. But if we actually said, hey, wait a minute, let me ask what people love spending money on. And let me start there instead of what not to do. Let me start with what I want to do. And then I can figure out how to get there. If I had done all those things and been more curious, boy, I would have lived my rich life a lot faster. And that's kind of why I'm here and very excited to speak to you and to your listeners. We've been taught to focus on what we don't want, what we can't have. But I would love to ask people what they want, what their rich life is, and then let's make a plan to get it. Let's talk about that plan. Or let's take it back to you're talking about in your 20s when you were walking through business class saying, you know, why are they spending all that money? Let's go back to that. Take you as the example. What should you have done? Because you said if you had started earlier in your 20s, you would be in a different place maybe than you are now, maybe not. But uh, so what could you have done differently? I mean, we're talking about the emotions and the psychology of your attitude, yeah. right? Okay, towards money. So uh, this is a great question. I'm so glad you're asking it. I would have, um, I would have first of all, changed my view from judging people to asking them like, hey, out of curiosity, how come you choose to do that? How come you choose to take that vacation? Or like, what, what do you get out of it? Oh, you ate at that restaurant. Wow, there's a lot of different places you could have eaten. Hey, how did you choose that one? And I would have listened, really listened, because I might have discovered that, for example, like I used to eat at Taco Bell when I was uh, in my teens. So Taco Bell, you can eat for cheap and you can get full. And I thought that was the way to look at food. How full can I get for how low of a price? And of course, as you get older, you discover intuitively there's a different way to look at eating. Maybe you don't want to walk out of a restaurant totally full. And so I could have asked people who are a little older, a little more experienced, hey, you know, why did you choose to eat at this restaurant? They might have told me, number one, I don't want to feel full. Number two, I want a place that's quiet so I can hear my partner who I'm talking to. Number three, I just like it. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I just want it. I can afford it. I don't have to justify it. I just want it. Those would have really changed the way I looked at spending money. And that is what I want to encourage everybody here. It's perfectly okay to say, you know what, I buy this uh, type of cheese or whatever it is that you love, or I go to this fitness class because I just love it. As long as you can afford it, you don't have to justify it or explain it. You can do it. That's your rich life. The next thing that I would have done would be to actually understand how much people earn. So it's one thing to say, oh, that's ridiculous. That's so crazy. 
But guess what? If somebody's earning three, four, five times what somebody else is earning, then to them, a business class ticket might be perfectly reasonable. And so for a lot of people, what I, the emphasis here is uh, let's be less judgmental about money and let's focus on ourselves. It's really easy to be judgmental instead of focusing our time on, hey, did I save money? Did I invest last month? Do I know where I want to go on vacation this year and how I'm going to automatically pay for it? That's what the book teaches you, which is to create a system and to create your rich life. Yours is different than mine, and it's different than your partner's and your neighbor's. That's okay, but I want to show you a system, a way that you can automatically get to creating your rich life, and that's involving choosing the right accounts, automating your money, investing, and even getting into deeper stuff like love. And So one of the things that I talk about in the book that I think will surprise a lot of people is this idea that you have to buy real estate. There's so many money myths, but this one really drives me crazy. And this money myth of buying a house is the best investment you can ever make, it's been repeated so many times that it's now propaganda. It's almost religious. And what I show you in the book is how to really analyze this idea of buying a house. When I bring up the idea that buying a house might not be the best investment, people get really mad because they've been taught it since they were kids. They've been told phrases like, you're throwing money away on rent. Are you though? Did you throw money away on that restaurant meal you went to yesterday? No. You paid for a perfectly good meal, and you were happy about it. Oh, well, I'm doing it for the tax deduction. Well, that's not really a good reason to buy a house, especially after 2018, unless you run the numbers. And finally, are you going to live in this house for 10 years? Can you be certain? And can you put 20% down? What you will discover when you run the numbers is that for a lot of people, you can actually make a better return by investing elsewhere in the stock market, which I talk about. Now, the next reaction is, well, that's gambling. Well, no, it's not. I show you how to really understand stock, the stock market, and I show you some of the surprising numbers behind owning a house. So you can agree or disagree with me. That's fine. But my point is for you to run the numbers and to not accept these common beliefs that everyone says in America. Uh, frankly, I'll just say, why would I take advice from somebody who's not in a financial position that I want to be in? So I want you to critically analyze this. I want you to think about what the right place for your money is. And I want you to understand how psychology plays a role in money. Yeah, so how do we do this? I mean, those are obviously, uh, I mean, how do we do this right from the beginning? Like, because it's, it's a whole, that attitude that we have towards money, which you say doesn't work, is something that's so pervasive. I mean, give us, how do we really, you really have to step way back, don't you? I mean, you start cho- teaching children you, you differently about money. Um, and that's, yeah, that I mean, if, way if I had my dream, yeah. I would be able, uh, yes, I would be able to teach from when someone was, you know, four or five years old, and they're starting to develop their thoughts about money. Unfortunately, most people don't think about money that early, and that's okay. What I would say is the first place that I start, and this is important, I chose it for psychology reasons, is credit cards. So all of us have credit cards, all of us hate our credit cards, and most of us don't really know how to squeeze the credit card companies for all the perks that they can offer us. We sort of just accept what they give us. There's a different way to approach it. And what I show people is, first off, if you've got debt, there are some pretty straightforward ways to pay your debt off. You don't have to put your head in the sand. The next thing is to turn the tables on the credit card companies and don't accept their late fees. In fact, you can just read the words that I give you off the page and get those fees waived. Sometimes you can even get your interest rates lowered. 
And finally, then you can go on offense and you can start to squeeze them for free vacations, free protection and perks that you never even knew they offered. Like an example, I bought a laptop and I accidentally spilled an entire mug of coffee into it like four or five days later. The credit card company wrote me a check for that computer. And so there's a lot of perks that these credit cards offer that we don't even know about. And I want to expose you to getting your credit card set up right and then your bank accounts. That's the way you start. How do we do all this without thinking about money all the time? I mean, we want this to be spontaneous, don't we? I mean, I, I don't like to, th- I, I kind of think I do a lot of what you're talking about and you're absolutely, I think, right on target. But how can, how can we do this so that we are not just constantly having to be so attentive? Can we do that? I mean, so that we, this all becomes just yeah. part of who, how we, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me ask you this. Do you, try to guess how much time I spend on my money every month. Well, you're writing books about money, so, and you're talking to people. So, But you mean just like your personal finances? How much time do you spend? Yep. All right. Well, I uh, paying your bills once a month, that's it. But Or planning vacations or planning uh, how you're going to spend your money um, for business or how you're going to spend it for pleasure, how much time? I mean, uh, 20 hours. Okay, that's a good guess. Now I'll tell you the answer for me, less than one hour per month. So absolutely, you can spend less time on this. I don't want you spending time sitting around paying bills. That's a waste of time. That's a $3 question. I want people asking $30,000 questions. And if you're spending time paying your bills, that's a waste of time. And that's only going to produce anxiety. My bills are automatically paid. That's a system I set up in Chapter 5. Everything's automated. My money automatically goes to savings. It's automatically invested. And it automatically gives me guilt-free spending. Everything is set up in a system so that I log in. I can see if anything's gone awry, but it almost never does. It's just very routine. And this this is a key thing of changing the way you think about money. The concept that money should be stressful and that you should be paying bills and it should have all these hot emotions is the wrong way to look at money, in my opinion. I want to go from hot to cool. Hot are words like anxious, nervous, embarrassed, guilty. Cool are words like decision. What do I decide that I want to spend on this month? Or I walk past a store or a restaurant and I say, hmm, I could go in there. Do I want it or not? I already know that I can afford it. So it's just a decision of on a cool level, do I want it or not? Not, oh, I, I feel like there's demons trying to convince me to buy this shoes or, or, or a coat or a restaurant. No, it's do I feel like it? It's cool. The way that you go from hot to cool, the way that you go from nervous, anxious, guilty to cool decision-making is to set up these systems. And once you set them up, the irony is you actually spend less time and you get to live in the real world. You get to live outside the spreadsheet. That is what I want your rich life to be. Because a rich life is not fiddling around with the spreadsheet and paying bills. That's not it. We both know that. It's actually living outside. It's with your partner, your family, uh, your friends. That's where the real rich life happens. So what happens to your rich life when catastrophic things happen to you that you have no control over? Divorce, severe, you know, illness, uh, those things that happen that you, they just come out of left field. Then what do you do? Yeah. 
Well, first off, I mean, those are, those are really traumatic situations, and I think that um, we should acknowledge beyond the money side, there's just a lot of emotional costs of things like that. And for anyone who's had to go through that or will, I, you know, I have to say that I can really feel for you. And, um, and I think it's tough to know that we will probably all go through something like that, whether it's the passing of a parent or losing a job. It will happen. And which brings me to planning for the worst. So there are certain things you can do. And I'm speaking about a financial perspective. Uh, you know, the first thing you can do is to get really honest about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We all have predictable expenses that will happen in the next 10 years. Uh, for some people, it's buying a house or buying a car. For some people, it's uh, taking a vacation. For almost everyone, it is Christmas gifts. And, you know, maybe it's having children or sending them to a certain school or camp. We know this ahead of time. And yet what we do is we sort of put our head in the sand and then wait until it's time to pay, and then we freak out and get frazzled. The first thing you can do to minimize the financial ramifications of something bad happening is to save ahead of time. Some of these things you know are going to happen. So that's a bare minimum. You want to start saving for those now. Some of these you don't know, and so you want to put a little bit away into things that, like an emergency fund. When it comes to a catastrophe, I never want people to have to make bad decisions because of money. I want you to know that your money is already taken care of, and now you can really spend the time, whether it's grieving or finding a solution to your problem. But I want money to be out of the equation as much as possible so that you can focus on taking care of yourself and, if necessary, your family. This is kind of a social work question, but what about, and I know because you've talked to so obviously many people and, and interviewed people and uh, have uh, experience in listening to people's stories. Some of the problems I know just from a, as a, as a therapist or as a counselor is that you have cu- partners, couples, and they come they 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 have a very different attitude towards money. One may have the same as what you're describing or more of what you're describing, and another may be exactly a 180 and the opposite, bringing couples together so that they can be unified in, in actually doing what you're saying, you know, being positive about money. Yeah, this is such a great question, <laughs> and it's something I've gone through myself. Uh, I, I was married last year, and my wife and I started talking about money before we were engaged, and I learned so much along the way, and I'm still learning about um, really integrating money philosophies. And wow, I think I'll probably spend the rest of my life integrating my money philosophy with my wife's. So I would say a couple of things. I'm really glad you brought this up. Uh, if you are not aligned with your partner on a money philosophy, it can be really, really difficult. And Typically what you will find is, this is the most common thing I've found, is that partners nitpick at each other's expenses. I had a woman, for example, who uh, sent me a note saying, my husband spends way too much money on iced tea. And I already knew what was going on just from that first comment, but I played it out. I said, oh my God, how much, how much money on iced tea? And she said, $1.50. I said, oh wow, how many times a month? 20 times a month. And then I said, out of curiosity, what's your household income? And guess what she told me? Her household told me income? That their yeah. household... Yeah, guess what she told me for their household income? Well, does household... Their annual... What, what they make between the two of them or the monies? That, yep. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. All right, I'll yep. say uh, $175,000 a year. 
<laughs> okay, very affluent. Good guess. Their household income was actually $600,000. Okay? So what is going on in this conversation? It's actually not about the money. In fact, the expense that the, the partner is spending on a iced tea is a rounding error. Frankly, they should not even be talking about expenses this low because it makes zero difference okay, at that income level. But obviously, there's a values difference. And she was probably raised in a family where you do it yourself, you make your own thing. He, in this case, was the higher earner. He said, you know, I earn a lot. And why shouldn't I spend 20, 30 bucks a month on something that makes me happy in the morning? But what happened was they were nitpicking on a tiny detail. What they should really do is move up a level and talk about values. What's important to me? Where do we want our money to go together as a team? And in cases like this, I think seeing a therapist is a great idea. If you find that you've been, you or your partner have been disagreeing about tiny expenses, anything less than even 500 bucks, then you could change that pattern, a pattern that you may have been in for the last 20 years with two or three conversations with a skilled therapist. And I can't recommend it enough. It's something that I've done myself, and it has really opened my eyes, my wife's eyes, and our eyes together as a team. Well, and you too, you just got married last year, you said, had the advantage. You already wrote a book. She knows how you feel about money. Or I assume. Yeah, I've been writing, you know, I've been writing about money for 15 years, but I hadn't, but there are also a lot of other things. I needed to realize that it's not just the Ramit show in my marriage. It's both of us. And so I needed to also listen to her perspective and hear what she thinks about money. And then for us to decide together as a team, the problem was that I wanted to jump ahead to the spreadsheet and the numbers. And I skipped over some of the other stuff, which is really listening and understanding. And that's what a therapist helped us to do and helped me to do personally. So I just can't recommend it enough. Well, people get divorced. The, the main things they get divorced about is sex and money, and I forgot what the third thing is. So really, I mean, what you're talking about and what your book is about is something that has to be or should be addressed before anyone decides to partner with anybody else or decides to live with them or marry them or uh, have a long-term relationship. That really should be number one, or otherwise you don't even have a chance, it seems to me. Yeah, money is a, is a huge topic. And I think, number one, most of us are uncomfortable with money because we ourselves don't have a money philosophy. We ourselves don't really know what we're doing with money. And then you bring someone else in the mix, and they don't know what they're doing. And then the two of you are just, you don't know what, neither of you knows what you're doing, but you certainly feel entitled to judge other people. So this is a recipe for disaster. And it, it manifests itself in really interesting ways. For example, the iced tea. You know, the iced tea is irrelevant. $30 a month means nothing to that couple. It shouldn't even be discussed. It shouldn't even be a topic financially speaking. But it actually represents something so much bigger that does need discussion. And that is values. What do we care about? What are some things that I'm just going to spend on myself and we're not going to talk about it because it's going to be part of my own personal spending? But then what are the things that we're going to set up jointly that we want to really agree on? These are conversations that need to happen. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself arguing about $10 expenses for the rest of your life. Americans are not supposed to talk about money. There's a, there's a supposed to. We talk about sex. We'll talk about our, I mean, as a woman, girlfriends, we'll talk about, we'll talk about sex. We'll talk about children. We'll talk about all different kinds of things. But we never 
talk about finances. That's one thing you don't talk about. It's sort of a taboo subject. It, not sort of. I think that it it still is. I mean, I think that's why your book is so important. But uh, there is that overriding we don't talk about money, how much money we have or how much money we don't have, uh, even to close friends. And I think that does carry over into relationships. You know what? You're so right. And there's a great study that I quote in the book about how people would rather talk about their sex lives than how much they owe in debt. And we know, we all intuitively know it. It's something you just don't talk about. And yet, in this culture, we're also glamorized for how much we spend on certain things, the greatest, the greatest uh, accomplishment in America seems to be that you make a lot of money, but you live like you have no money. And I find this incredibly fascinating, troubling, and paradoxical. It's why we hold up millionaires who fly economy class or billionaires who live in their same house since the 1960s. And yet they have a private jet, by the way. So it, it makes no sense, the paradoxical way that we treat money in this country. And what happens is you end up uh, spending a ton of money on stuff you may or may not even want. You can't afford it, or you've never thought about how to afford it. And then you feel guilty, and then you go do it all again. That's hot. That's a hot emotion. Guilt, overspending, keeping up with the Joneses. What I want to do is for you to take it down to cool. Again, what, what do I value? What's important to me? And if, for example, it's, you know, there's a lot of people these days who are going to workout classes, they're doing cycling or spin classes. My dream would be to ask you, what if you doubled your spending on that? It's the thing you love. What if you doubled it? And this concept I call money dials. And I've written about this online before. And people, their eyes go wide because they love it. Most people, their money dial is either health and fitness it's food, they really love eating out, or it's, um, uh, it's experience. You know, maybe they like taking the kids to Disneyland. So I ask them, what if you doubled your spending on it? And their eyes light up. Oh, my God, it would be amazing. I would get the extra early admission for my kids at Disneyland, etc. And then I say, you know what? In my book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, I show you how to spend extravagantly on the things you love. But I also show you how to cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And this totally changes people's perspectives because they realize, wait a second, I can go to a new spin class or get a personal trainer or go to Disneyland early. If I just cut back a little bit here or there, oh my God, I'm in. That is the philosophy of I will teach you to be rich. Okay. I will teach you to be rich. We have 30 seconds left and we've been talking to Ramit Sati. I will teach you to be rich. No guilt, no excuses, no BS, just a six-week program that works. And you can buy his book online, bookstores everywhere. And also, uh, go to your website, right? I will teach you to be rich.com. Uh, thanks so That's much right. for being on the show today. Great advice. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> 